Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. everyone and welcome to episode 406 of the Battery Power Podcast. I am your host Brad Roland, coming to you on a Sunday evening here on July 2nd and I am joined by no one on this first part of the podcast. My friend Scott Coleman, my usual co-host, is in transit this weekend. Next week I will be not here also covering basketball but Scott will be back and we'll have plenty of content in this space and also later on in this podcast I will be joined by Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America. Carlos actually was the founding co-host of this podcast alongside me many, many years ago and now covers the MLB draft and the minor league baseball scene, college baseball, high school baseball, etc. for Baseball America, and he will be on the broadcast at MLB Network throughout the draft process. So a genuine expert, he'll be on the podcast later on to talk about the draft from the Braves side, the top of the draft, and all that fun stuff. But first, plenty to get to about the Atlanta Braves right now because, in short, the Braves are the hottest team in baseball. They have won eight games in a row, including a sweep against the Miami Marlins this weekend. They're 15-1 in the last 16 games. They are 23-3 in the last 26 games. And as of now, as I record this podcast on Sunday evening, the Braves have a nine-game lead in the National League East here at the halfway point, basically, of the season. I did a bonus podcast on the same feed on Friday night about the absolutely wild performance in the month of June from the Braves, and of course right after that they won two more games in a row. So June was essentially an all-time month. I threw out a lot of stats on that podcast, a lot of context on that podcast. It's still very much relevant at this point in time, but it has been absolutely crazy to see this this team performing this well. It'll touch on the results from this week, some more numbers coming up later in the podcast as well. There are some notes, though, to get to on the news front, so we'll start there before we dive back into the on-field stuff. We already knew that Ronald Acuna, Sean Murphy, and Orlando Arcia were going to be all-star starters from the National League this year in the all-star game. Sean Coleman laid that out for you earlier this week on the podcast, also covered at BatteryPower.com. The full rosters were announced this evening, Sunday, July 2nd, and the Braves have eight selections for the first time ever. Yes, eight is the first time ever for the Braves. Last time they had as many as seven was 2003, an awesome team that Scott and I talked about last week on the podcast. That was Russ Ortiz, by the way, uh, Marcus Giles, Gary Sheffield, Rafael Fercal, Javi Lopez, Andrew Jones, and John Smoltz. This time around... It is Acuna, Murphy, and Arcia, and they'll be joined by Matt Olson, Ozzy Albies, Austin Riley, Spencer Strider, and Bryce Elder. So, also, that is the entire starting infield, which is wild, but also appropriate in a lot of ways. It always helps, I'll say this, to have the best record in the major leagues at the time of the announcement. So, not a lot of controversy here on some of these selections. A couple of them could have gone either way, I will be honest about that. And, again, probably does not hurt that the Braves are playing so incredibly well and some big names. But, uh, yeah. Obviously, the starters were deserving. Matt Olson was an absolute lock with 28 home runs and a 145 WRC+. He's been on an absolute tear for a while now. 
Strider was also pretty much a lock. You know, his ERA isn't quite as dominant as you might think, but he's in the top tier of the National League in, in Fangraph's war among pitchers. The strikeout numbers are always huge, always going to be there, and definitely should be. Albies wasn't a total lock, but certainly was projected to be there. 20 home runs this year already, and earned a reputation for being one of the best players at his position in the league. And he's one of those guys I think benefits from the Braves being awesome this year. I think the weakest bid is either Albies or Austin Riley. Riley's not having a great year by his standards, as we covered as we covered a little bit on this podcast previously. But still, like it's a pretty weak year for National League third baseman. Like even Nolan Arenado having kind of a bad year by his standards. And Riley still has 15 home runs. He's still been an above average hitter this year. Um, obviously, was an All Star last year, so not a big surprise that he's there by any means either. And then Bryce Elder obviously would have been a complete and utter shock a few months ago, but as far as the performance this season, he is definitely deserving of being there. A 2.44 ERA and uh, has certainly sort of crossed the threshold of being worthy of selection when you're accounting for only the first half of this season. So congrats to all eight guys. You know, some first-timers, Strider, Elder, Murphy, Arcia. Uh, that's awesome as well. So a lot of fanfare. You know, I'm not the, I'm not the biggest all-star guy in the world. I'll always say that on the podcast, but certainly a nice time to celebrate the Braves. They've earned it. They've had a fantastic season to this point in time, and uh, all eight guys deserving of inclusion. Last news bit here is that Max Fried faced live hitters in batting practice for the first time on Friday. A good step for sure. No huge follow-up and no timeline for his potential return, but certainly a positive sign. And look, Kyle Wright, same thing. Jesse Chavez, same thing. Like, you're hoping these guys come back, but for free, it's kind of the next step up. He's much more important than the rest of these guys when it comes to making the Braves the best that they could possibly be. It is pretty crazy the Braves have, been, have managed to do all of this damage, like I said before, 23-3 and in the last 26 games without Max Freed. But he is still either their best or second-best pitcher alongside Strider and a valuable, very, very important piece of this roster. So hopefully he is back sooner rather than later and at 100% health moving forward. Okay, with all that out of the way, some results from the week. As I said before, and I'll say again now, Sean Coleman of the Daily Hammer does a great job with all of this stuff, as well as Stephen and Chris on the podcast to be named later on the same feed, so please subscribe. And I'm going to kind of breeze through the Twin Series as a result. They were all covered in depth on this podcast feed before. But Monday, <clears throat> seven innings, sorry, seven inning home runs from Ozuna and Acuna were the difference. On Monday, Strider was also great. Struck out 10 in seven innings, outdueled Sonny Gray in that performance. Half of the bullpen literally was unavailable on Monday, and it was huge to get seven innings out of Strider in that performance as a result. Tuesday, they hit five home runs in the first 10 plate appearances of the game. That does not usually happen against anyone, much less off a really good pitcher in Joe Ryan from Minnesota, so that was really, really impressive. Never scored again, but it didn't matter at all. Bryce Elder, again, rock solid in that game. The Braves did make four errors, which was kind of strange on Tuesday, but it was uh, not enough to dissuade them from winning the game. Wednesday, the headliner was Colby Allard, his season debut, and the first time he started for the Braves since 2018. He actually struck out eight guys, which was kind of surprising. It looked pretty good, and uh, good to see that out of Colby for the first time in a while. There's that spot that's kind of been in flux, and he, he filled it in a nice way in that game. And the bullpen, by the way, threw four and a third innings of scoreless baseball with only one total base runner allowed on Wednesday. That was impressive. So for the whole Twin Series, the Braves actually cooled off a little bit. Again, a little bit on offense. Only 13 runs in, in three games, but had eight homers. Acuna had an OPS over 2,000 in the series. The Twins' crazy stat here was that they, they were 0 of 23 with runners in scoring position in the series. Only had three runs in three games. And at the end of that, the Braves had their best 80-game record as a team since 1897. So that's pretty good, I would say. To the weekend, the Braves absolutely blasted the Miami Marlins, really in all three games, but especially on Friday, 16-4. to 
And uh, that was the podcast that spurred all of my uh, bonus podcast thoughts on Friday evening. But they optioned Jared Schuster before the game, sorry, after Wednesday's game, I should say, and started Michael Soroka on Friday. He looked good in his return, much better, much crisper than his last time he was up with, with the big league club. Give up two home runs, but neither get six innings, seven strikeouts, five hits, three runs, no walks. You got to love that every single time, even against a pretty bad Miami offense in some ways. I thought he looked pretty good, so that's a very nice sign for a guy that everyone is rooting for in a big way. The Braves scored five runs in the first inning again on Friday, kept it rocking and rolling. Matt Olson had two home runs, a triple, and a single in the first six innings of the game. Uh, he set the Braves' record, by the way, for most home runs in the first 81 games of a season, and the Braves, in this game on Friday, set the MLB all-time record for most home runs in the first half of a season, 81 games. Very impressive. As a team in that game on Friday, the Braves had six home runs and 10 extra base hits. And here's another one for you. Ronald Acuna became the first player in the history of baseball to have 20 home runs and 35 steals before the All-Star break. With more than a week to go, by the way, before the All-Star break. He had all, he had all those numbers. Again, I have a laundry list of stats about, about that that game and as well as the entire month of, month of June. I recommend listening to that podcast. It's, only, it's pretty short, 15 minutes or so on Friday night. But that was, uh, I will not go into all that depth now. But if you want to have even more enjoyment of, of June and all the numbers associated with that, that is available on your podcast feed of choice. As for the rest of the weekend, Saturday was a 7-0 victory and the 7th straight win for the Braves. I talked extensively about the first inning dominance of the Braves on that bonus podcast, by the way, on Friday. And the Braves came out, of course, the next morning, sorry, the, I guess the next afternoon, evening, and scored six runs in the first inning on Saturday. They didn't score in the first inning on Sunday, which is, I guess, that's allowed still, but at 87 first inning runs in 83 games so far for the Braves. That is absolutely crazy. Not much else happened after that first inning barrage on Saturday, but the damage was already done on the way to a win. Also, the eruption came against Yuri Perez, who had an ERA near one for the season and like a 20-inning scoreless streak coming into the game, and the Braves just did not care about that at all. Blasted him on Saturday. Charlie Morton did his job. Five and two-thirds scoreless innings. Um, needed uh, Sort of had some pitch count issues in that game, but did his job very well. ERA back down to 3.57. Got to take that if you're Charlie Morton. And the bullpen was once again awesome. Three and a third scoreless innings on Saturday to put the game away. And then on Sunday, the Braves had a 6-3 victory earlier today <clears throat> to cap off the sweep and the eighth consecutive win for the team. Again, 16-1 in the last 17 games. Just absolute lunacy. Over that sample, the Braves have outscored opponents by 71 runs in 17 games. 131-60. to 60. So more than doubling up opponents over 17 games. Average score in those games, 7.7 for the Braves and 3.5 for opponents. That is utter domination over about two and a half, three weeks of play. Ridiculous stuff. Three more home runs for the Braves on Sunday. Orlando Garcia had been kind of in a slump over the, over the previous like 10 games or so, but he had, had one of the home runs. Um, Strider was good again. Nine strikeouts. Bullpen was great as well. Shouts to Ben Heller, who's been excellent in six out of his seven appearances since joining the Braves. Very nice stuff out of the bullpen really all weekend. And again, the Braves are up nine games in the division after the sweep on Sunday. And uh, easy to kind of, you know, make fun of, I guess, the Miami Marlins for the way that the, the, the series went. There was a lot of buzz about like NLCS preview or whatever you want to say. Um, I've never been the biggest believer in the Marlins. They're better than they look like look this weekend. I'll say that. But look, after this weekend, yes, they are 48 and 37. That's a really good record. They are minus 22 in run differential. So, generally speaking, I'm gonna lean more run, run differential than uh, results as far as like how good a team actually is. And the Marlins' offense just is not that it's not that good to be honest with you. So, I think the Braves 
being up nine on them, being up as we as we speak right now, twelve on the Phillies and nineteen, <laughs> nineteen on the Mets is uh, pretty remarkable. The Mets do play tonight, so that could change, but it is what it is. The Braves have been dominating the competition for quite some time now, and they are in a great spot at this very moment. Um, that's kind of all I have on the results for this week. Obviously, we'll have more on, on BatteryPower.com and on the same podcast feed later on this week coming up. But there is a little bit of stuff to discuss about the coming week itself. They are at Cleveland for three games beginning on Monday. The Guardians are decent. They're not great. They're like a 500-ish team right now. Um, very good run prevention. They're in the top you know, two or three in the American League and runs allowed. But their offense is not very good. Uh, in fact... As of right now, as I record this podcast, I believe they are in the bottom. Yeah, they're, they're actually fourth worst in the American League in scoring. So the offense is not particularly impressive for Cleveland. The pitching matchups are out. Projected, of course, always. Is uh, Monday, Bryce Elder against Gavin Williams. Tuesday, Colby Allard against Shane Beamer. Uh, sorry, Bieber. Uh, and then Wednesday, Michael Soroka against Cal Quantra, who's been struggling madly. I think Tuesday is the one that the Braves would, have, would probably project to have the most trouble on paper. Again, on paper being the key word there, because Shane Bieber is really good. And Colby Howard's still kind of a question mark, although he pitched well this week. But uh, still, not nothing you know huge to kind of, you know, run, you're not running, running into a buzzsaw. You know, I have to say, at some point, the Braves are not going to win every single night, because that's just not what happens in baseball. But at the same time, they have been awesome on the road this year, too. 26-12 and 12 on the road. Uh, all the stuff that you're looking for up and down the uh, the roster of terms of effectiveness, and Cleveland is not as good as Atlanta. So we'll see how this series goes. And then Thursday, they are off. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I got to say, probably the most anticipated series of the entire season to this point between two teams, it is the Tampa Bay Rays taking on the Braves in the last series of the first half. Friday night's game is on Apple TV+, Plus, which I'm, I'm sure everybody loves always, but uh, that's a national broadcast. Then Saturday, another national game on Fox. And then Sunday is an afternoon game before the draft, which happens Sunday evening. So headliner, obviously there, because you know the Rays and Braves are basically right now battling for the best record in baseball, which the Braves, I believe, currently have, if they do, by a half game, because Tampa Bay lost today. But Tampa Bay has the advantage in run differential, and they have been sitting atop the standings all year long. Essentially, there are three teams in baseball in their own tier as far as run differential or base runs, however you want to say that. It's the Braves, the Rays, and the Texas Rangers who have cooled off a lot recently but were bludgeoning teams early on, and the Braves being the only team in the National League playing at that level right now. So, yeah, that's a headline grabber. Obviously, Tampa Bay isn't the same kind of brand as, like, the Yankees or whatever nationally as far as, like, casual fans are concerned, but the Rays are awesome, and that's a very nice test for the Braves with two national TV games, all that stuff, and uh, I guess I'm as I'm recording this podcast, the, the Rays are still playing, so we don't know their, their actual record, but even if they lose, they're still up there, I promise you. So, all that said... A fun week to come, an incredibly fun week of baseball, a fun month of baseball going back to June, and uh, I've said a lot in a short period of time, I know, but long story short, you cannot really ask for a better spot for the Atlanta Braves, especially when you factor in, it hasn't been perfect for injuries this year, Max Free, Kyle Wright, etc., but the offense has been utterly dominant, they still have, they have 39 more runs, sorry, 20 more runs than any, any team in the, in the National League right now, um, I believe they are only second uh, they're in the top three as well to the Rays and the Rangers in runs scored. They are rocking, rolling, dominating, and quite honestly, it's a uh, you, you never want to overstate it or jinx it or whatever. And we don't we we try to be pretty responsible with our analysis on this podcast. But the way the Rays are playing right now, it is pretty easy to be confident and excited. You know, baseball in the playoffs especially is very difficult. It's kind of hard. There's a reason why I can't predict ball is a uh, is a slang term of some sorts. But 
the Braves have a 24% World Series chance at Fangraphs in July. That is a extremely high number. They have a 98, 99% chance to win the division on paper. I would never go that high because that's just my personal bias. But the Braves are on pace to, you know, win a lot of games. There's the debate we had last week about about the best team in, in team uh, sort of best team in franchise history. The Braves are on ch- have a, definitely have a chance to be number one on that list, especially especially if they can finish this off and win the World Series. But a long way to go. But you know, halfway through a run for the ages in June and the first two games of July were pretty darn impressive in their row right as well. All right, that's all I have on the baseball on field side right now. But after a quick break here from our sponsors, I will come back with Carlos Colazzo again. Awesome guest on the podcast. Stay tuned for all of that stuff. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, places like Apple and Spotify. Very much appreciate it. Also follow the show and follow the site on Twitter at BatteryPowerSBN, BatteryPower.com for all of your Braves needs in written form. And after a break from our sponsors, myself and Carlos talking about the MLB Draft. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am joined for the first time in a while by the former, let's just say, what, founding co-host of this podcast, Carlos Colazzo, Big Shot, Baseball America. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. What's up, dude? How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you uh, keep giving me credit for helping start the podcast. I think at, at some point I have to relinquish any credit for that. You guys, well, no, you it, guys it, ha- it happened. It's, it, was a, it was a long time ago, but it, it did happen. Your voice is on this podcast. You can go, go back to the beginning. So you're there. And uh, sure. as people can, can guess by your title at Baseball America, you have lapped, this, you lapped me, that's for sure, in terms of uh, prominence in the baseball that's industry. Not true. What is your official title right now? I know it's like national something. What's your title right now? Baseball America? National writer. But there you go. I don't know. Who, who cares? I, I cover the draft. <laughs> national... So uh draft cover um so yeah we're we're recording this couple days before, <laughs> before before i actually uh release it because of my normal schedule but the draft is coming soon i tried to bug you a little bit before mm-hmm. it because uh at least the last couple of years, you've been on tv like during the draft like you're i know you're busy when the actual draft yeah. happens um for some reason there. they keep having me back so oh you're an expert one of these um, years they'll say they'll <laughs> say uh it's enough it's enough of me you're, you're a true expert <laughs> uh but uh the draft is coming it's it's actually july 9 through 11 first round coverage is that Sunday. It's a little bit weird. I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna get you in trouble, but it's, it's a little bit strange. This is me talking to have the draft be the last day of the first half of the season where like there's games like in the afternoon, the Braves play. In fact, the Braves play the Rays, like number one versus number one on, on, draft that, day. on that Sunday afternoon. Yeah. That's going to be a little bit interesting just to navigate. Yeah. I mean, that's not ideal as, as someone who covers the draft. <laughs> I mean, we should clear the schedule. Come on. Everyone's all eyes got to be in the draft. I'm saying I, so. Yeah. F- futures game the day before yeah. the draft is Monday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. So at least there's a little bit of runway. Although isn't it against the Derby and the all-star game too on Monday and Tuesday? Is that right? Or something like that? Monday. Yeah. The, well, the second and third day of the draft, like I, I can kind of understand them kind of just throwing it onto the schedule and sure. getting all the other all-star stuff. Cause you really have to be a prospect hound to tune into that and watch it the entirety or like related to a player who could be drafted <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's just so many rounds, so many players. It's hard. I think it's hard enough in the baseball draft to create like a really entertaining product for, for day one. Um, and that presumably is when more of the casual fans who, who maybe don't follow prospects constantly would be tuning in. But for but days two and three, that's you're a real prospect junkie if you're tuning in for those. So we appreciate 
all yeah. of you who do that. But I um, know some of our uh, yeah, I think uh, our, our staff does for sure. Matt and, uh, Matt and those guys definitely will be grinding away on those two days. But of course, uh, love that. And, and look, I, I said I said this before I brought you in, but I'll say it again now with you here. You know this. I think the listeners know this too. I don't know anything about the draft. That's why I'm having Carlos on. I can kind of just tee him up. I, I know very, very little. In fact, you would have been proud of me though. I did watch a decent chunk of the college world series. So I know enough to be dangerous about like five you know, guys. I'm excited to hear that because from it's tough because you get in this kind of echo chamber where all the people you're hearing talk about the games or people who are always watching like amateur baseball and college baseball. And people are talking about how great it was and how many numbers, but like the fact that you're not someone who like is consistently watching college baseball and you tuned in like that's encouraging to me because I do feel like this year it felt bigger for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's just because there were some very prominent programs or if it was the combination of strong programs and prominent blue chip prospects or what. But it really seemed like a lot came together for that event to be great on top of the games outside of like the last two games in the finals. There were a lot of really good baseball games on top of just having big programs, big fan bases and and high profile prospects like Dylan Cruz and. Paul Skeen to White Langford. Yeah, it was getting a lot of hype. And that's, I mean, maybe part of why I was watching, uh, maybe subliminally, just like, hey, everyone's talking about how awesome mm-hmm. this is going. Let's let's tune in a little bit more. And I saw some of the numbers about that's how awesome. close, the, like you said, how close the games were and uh, and the level of talent. I mean, that's that kind of goes into my first mm-hmm. question, which we'll, we'll talk about more about the Braves for the most part on this conversation. But I do want to ask you like about the overall class not only the top of the board, you talk about the top of the board too, like kind of what you think about the top of the board, but is this a good class? Like I, I, yeah. it's kind of hard to talk about like general classes, but is this, is this viewed as a strong class overall? Yeah, I think it very much so is viewed as a strong class for me personally. It's the strongest draft class I've covered since I've done this at Baseball America. I think you have elite talent at the very top end. The three guys I just mentioned who are college players. I mean, people have compared Dylan Cruz to an Adley Rutschman, um caliber of talent a a chris bryant caliber of college talent so not quite to the generational bryce harper level but like very close as close as you can get to that without kind of being in that tier and then you have paul Skeens, who is pretty unanimously regarded as the best college pitching prospect since steven strasberg um that the fact that you have those two up top and then wyatt langford you could make a case for him being better than Cruz, depending on like your philosophy, what you like in a prospect, um, just production he has in the SEC tool set physicality. And then you have two high school players in Walker Jenkins and Max Clark who round out kind of this consensus top five. Those players would be potential number one picks in any other draft class. Like they stack up with the Jackson Holidays and Drew Jones a year ago with Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Meyer a few years before that and players who are we're kind of very prominent big leaguers now, like Corbin Carroll's, uh, CJ Abrams, Riley Green's of the world. Like they're they're in that tier of player. So you have a really strong group of five at the top. And then this is also our third year out from the COVID draft of 2020. And so I think we're still seeing the ripple effects of that draft uh, on the college class. And so the depth is very strong as well. Um, I think maybe the one week spot of this draft or the two specific demographic weaknesses you could point to are college catchers. There's Kyle Teal, who has a chance to be drafted in the top 10 after that massive drop off. Um, and that's a position of need that, that teams really like to draft from. And then college left handed pitchers specifically. Mm-hmm. There are not a lot of great lefties. But other than that, I really think every other demographic is strong. It's deep. There are a lot of players. There are a lot of high school pitchers with stuff. There are a lot of high school hitters this high school shortstop group is fantastic. And, and maybe that kind of pivots towards the Braves. Cause I think there are going to be a lot of those players on the board around where they're picking this year. Um, there's a lot of up the middle college 
hitters, which you generally don't see a ton of just because those guys get popped out of high school. So it's a very, very strong draft class. Um, we pull scouting directors every year. We have for the last three or four years. Um, it was average or better grades across the board, which is the first year in the, th- I think it's three years that I've like tried to quantify that, that it's been average or better in every category. Yeah. Um, and as we've kind of approached it, people continue to sing the praises of the class. So it's a very, very strong year. That's good to hear, even as uh, an outsider. And I know, I know um, per- my personal affection, there's a Parkview High School project- projected first round pick. That is, that's a high school shortstop that you, uh, yeah, probably you know, in the little home. school of Parkview. Yeah. They don't get much of a, I'm just much saying notoriety in baseball circles, but they've got I had one. to uh, oh. I had to bring that up because Matt Olson is uh, exists. And of course, my personal allegiance is aside. But um, well, I'm glad you did because he's actually <laughs> he was one of my personal favorites in the class, too. So well, there I'm, you go. I'm with you. I'll, I'll get a Parkview jersey. Parkview High School Zone. Um, OK, so <laughs> beyond. Uh, OK, I have I have one. I have one uh, normie question about Paul Skeens. This doesn't have anything to do mm-hmm. with the Braves. He's going to be long gone. But so you yeah, mentioned yeah. The, Stra- the Strasburg comp, all that stuff. It I guess the general <laughs> easy question is like, is he actually going to be? Because look, I watched him pitch at least exactly once as far as a full start. He looked amazing to me in that one start. But like, is there is mm-hmm. is, it, is it justifiable hype? Like, is he actually supposed to be as good as you just described him being? I guess is the question. So I, I'll try and like thread this. I think he's the best college pitching prospect since Strasburg. Yeah, I have not directly compared him to Strasburg, and okay. I know like. The, the simple fact of that statement is going to make the comparison for people. Of course. I don't really know. I, I don't necessarily know what else he would have to do to like actually earn it and it not be overhyped. I mean, I mean the numbers are insane, has, by the way. The numbers are absolutely preposterous that I saw for him. And and I think th- there are two things that are pretty interesting about that when comparing to Strasburg. I, can, I think you can make a case maybe that Strasburg's pure stuff compared to his peers – there was more separation between him back then and whoever the next best pitcher was in his class compared to now. Cause everyone throws harder. It seems like there are a lot, there's just yeah. a lot better stuff overall, but Paul Skeens also just posted like far and away the best pitching season numbers in the sec. This like the gap between him and just like performance wise. I, I had a golden spikes award vote and I voted for Paul Skeens just cause the gap between him and the next best pitcher I thought was clearly much larger than the gap between Cruz and whatever hitter you thought was next. Like you can make a case for a couple other hitters having equivalent or better years than Cruz in my mind. And the fact that Skeens did that in the SEC compared to Steven Strasburg, who did it at a smaller school in a college baseball environment that is as home run friendly and is as offensive friendly as we've seen maybe ever. I know JJ did a story about this, just kind of looking at the home run rates in college baseball, like the home run rates this year, like for the four division one baseball collectively are greater than the gorilla ball era, like <laughs> in late nineties, early two thousands when, when the bats were like insane and you had, they had to be, they had an equipment change to deal with it. Yeah. That's, that's how insane this, this offensive environment was. And the only thing that prevented Paul Skeens from going six or seven innings and punching out 12 batters was the weather. Like there was a South Carolina game where he punched out, I think eight batters in three innings, and then the game was delayed for weather. And outside of that, I think almost all of his starts were six or seven with double-digit punch-outs. It was kind of remarkable how consistent he was. And I think there's been a little bit of a down. Like the past few years, we haven't had great college pitching prospects in general. I think like since I've been doing it, I've kind of not had too many great years. Casey Mize was really good. Um, Jack Leiter and Kamar Rocker were solid, but I think like, probably not as good as their hype was at the time. 
Paul Skeens is is the real deal in my mind. It's a, a, a fastball that averaged 98 this year. He's consistently getting to 100 in the sixth or seventh inning. He's six foot six, 250 pounds. It's an easy delivery. Analytic analytic people will will tell you that his slider is better than his fastball, which averages <laughs> 98. And he's yeah. also got a changeup that he showed a little bit in. I don't know which game you saw, but he used the changeup more in the College World Series than he did at any time during the regular season. And I think that's a legitimate plus pitch too. So you're looking at a guy who has three easy pluses. You could argue two double pluses plus control elite body. And by the way, he's also a first round talent as a hitter. If he, if he wanted to hit. So <laughs> he, he is very freakish. Uh, yeah, that, and that the fact that like there's another player that could be still the number one player in the class, I think speaks to just how, how much impact talent we have this year. It's really cool. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, it's, it's never that simple, but, you know, there's also like just the, the endless debate about pitching versus position player. And if, if they're anywhere close, which way oh, yeah. you lean and position player kind of gets the nod most of the time there just because of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he's if he's as good as it as good as he'd have to be to be consideration number one overall in a class that you just described having at least one or two guys that are like definitely no, number one overall talents. I mean, he, he almost has to be better than them almost as far as in a vacuum because he's a pitcher and pitchers get that curve mm-hmm. kind of graded towards them. Does that, does that make sense? I my, think my amateur. Yeah, no, I think that that tracks perfectly. That's exactly how I would think through it. And for me personally, I would still go with Cruz just because I'm, I'm terrified of pitchers, but yep. <laughs> uh, there are people at, at BAA, JJ, I think JJ Cooper has been public about this. Like he would take Skeens and he'd run away doing it because it's a very easy case to make that Paul Skeens has the highest upside in this class. Um, and if you want to shoot for that upside, I don't blame you at all. I think an ace pitcher is probably the hardest and the most expensive um, role to acquire for a big league team. And, and if you wanted to to take on that risk and go for him, then by all means do. And and again, for pitcher risk, like we can say, oh, pitchers have all this risk, but he's also big league ready now. Like he's the type of guy who, who, who honestly should get a major league contract. And as soon as he pitches, he should go into the big leagues, like maybe a couple of tune-up games in the minors, like whatever Steven Strasburg's path was all those years ago. Yeah. There's no reason why Paul Skeens can't also handle that path mentally, physically, stuff wise, command wise, like it, there's, you don't have to project anything on him. And that's really wild in itself, not to keep, we, we won't keep going down this road, but the fact that you just said yeah. he's so here, Braves major league, fans, major league contract, like, that you're man. not going to touch. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That That's fa- honestly, again, outside of perspective, that's fascinating to me because you have to mm-hmm. be so, so, so good to go, especially as a pitcher to be like, for mm-hmm. you to say he's major league ready right now is like pretty terrifying, especially for a starter. Cause sometimes you, you know, you'll see the reliever that comes mm-hmm. up quickly, but starters don't really ever do that. I mean, Strasburg was like the last guy mm-hmm. that I heard of even being considered to do that for the most part at, at that highest level. Yeah. So that, that tells you all you need to know right there, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I don't want to go too long on schemes, but it's it's to the point where other advisors that I'm talking to, other agents have been like, yeah, if I was repping him, I would I would be trying to get a major league deal. And I've not heard that for any player. So yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. There you have it. All right, we'll go to the Braves now. Um, I, I know enough to know that this, you know, sort of the talking point that I've, been asking people about or hearing about is uh, sort of, you know, the loss of Dana Brown, the overall philosophy that's going on in Atlanta. Now mm-hmm. you don't cover the Braves every day, but you know enough to know what's going on. Uh, what do you think as far yeah. as like that changeover and like, what is that? What should I tell maybe a more casual fan about like, look, that may know who Dana Brown is maybe, and that, that he's not there anymore. Like mm-hmm. what's sort of the organizational philosophy that pops into your head when I mentioned the Braves and that changeover? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I think of is I don't think anyone who's been a Braves fan for a while, probably has forgotten about Brian Bridges and the, the yeah. drafts that he had when he was leading the team. So, so once Brian left and the Braves continued to to scout well and do player development well, I think there should be a lot of confidence in the continuity of the organization. They've 
They've proven to be one of the most consistent and higher achieving scouting and uh, player acquisition and player development organizations in all of baseball. I think I would have a lot of faith in Alex Anthopoulos to put the right people in charge and the fact that they have really good systems and processes in Atlanta um, to, to just feel confident in knowing that it's not just one person that's that's responsible for the really successful drafts and the really successful player development um, like stories that we've gotten with, with the Braves in the last few years. Um, maybe it is more interesting to see if like, if there is maybe a subtle shift, because I know when Bridges left, they were viewed as more of an old school kind of scouting team and they did that very well. And then when Dana Brown came in and and I think it might've even just been more of Alex Anthopoulos's strategy and ideas. And I mean, that's the reason Dana would have been in charge. Um, they're, they're in alignment with what they think of things, but there, there's a little bit more analytics, uh, that were involved. I know the first year, it was kind of a big deal. Oh, the Braves are going to draft different now. What kind of players are they taking? Like people didn't really love Braden Shoemake when he was drafted mm-hmm. first uh, in the first round. I think it's Shoemake and maybe Langoliers from the same draft. Um, yeah, that was right after Carter Stewart. So I, I don't have any, if I was a Braves fan, I would not have any concerns and like, oh, like we're not going to draft well anymore. We're not going to scout well. Like there, there are a number of teams in baseball who seem to just be able to kind of keep plugging along. Uh, when people leave and because it's because there are really strong systems and processes in place. I think Cleveland is that. I think the Dodgers are that. I think Tampa Bay is that. And I think you could put Atlanta in in that conversation as well with what they've done over the last six years or so. Um, So it it might be interesting to see what direction they go, how they decide to manipulate the board. I wouldn't read too much into the first pick because a lot of that's just going to depend on who who's there and it's such a it's such a wide range of players, even compared to a normal year, just given the the depth and the strength of the class. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't get too. I think it's going to be pretty much Braves Braves draft as normal. I guess I would say. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you know being at twenty four overall, their first pick, it's already going to be hard to figure out who's going to go there based on who's available always. And then from what you just said, that's interesting. Also. Um, I looked this up mm-hmm. just to make sure I wasn't crazy. I believe in Anthopolis's tenure, the Braves have gone under slot in the first round every single year. So they usually go under mm-hmm. slot there and kind of try to manipulate their money, like you said. Um, I guess for mm-hmm. people that have no idea what they're ta- what, what they're talking about with the draft, can you just remind people of like how that sometimes works with people with, with the with the bonus pools and all that stuff? Yeah. I know th- I know the pool is eight point three million for the Braves this year, which is and the first round slot is like three point three something like that. So they can be creative. Yeah, three point. Yep. You're, you're dead on with that. Yes. Um, so just kind of looking at, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the guy who says he doesn't know anything about the draft. My, 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 uh, uh, my 10 minutes of research was great. Was, was great before we were there. I did a great Googling for me on baseballamerica.com. I think. <laughs> I uh, let me actually see. They have the, the 22nd largest pool this year. So that's pretty much in line with where they're picking. Um, so they're not positioned in like a unique area this year, but the way the, the way the financials work for the MLB draft is each pick in the top 10 rounds comes with an assigned slot value, uh, for every single pick, you sum up all of your picks and the values tied to those. And that's your total bonus pool. That's the money that you're able to use to sign everyone in your draft class. Um, you don't have to give the player that you take with a pick, the exact assigned value. It's not a hard slotting system. Uh, and so a lot of teams use that flexibility to get creative. Um, you're talking about under slotting players. That just means you're signing a guy to less than the assigned slot value. Uh, and you can use the money that you saved on that pick towards a more expensive player further down in the draft. 
Uh, if you want to go with like a portfolio approach, the Pirates did this notably a few years ago when they picked Henry Davis first overall. They saved, I think, one or two million dollars somewhere in that range. And then they got a bunch of really high upside, expensive high school players. So typically what you'll see for teams doing this is they'll underslot someone in the first round. It could be a college player. It could be a high school player who's just kind of uh, securing himself on the draft board. If he feels like he has a wide range, you'll maybe you'll take a little bit less because um, you know you're going to get picked. You know there's not a risk of you falling and you're comfortable with whatever the money is. And then you can move that money to either more expensive high school players, uh, a surprising player who falls on the board that you didn't expect to have access to. It just allows you to be a lot more creative. And it also means that the draft board doesn't necessarily go in the order of how the industry views the talent. Yeah. Um, and so what I like to do every year after signing deadline is just take the list of players and filter it by bonus. And that will give you a much better view of how the industry views the talent. But that's kind of an overview of how it works. It's honestly a pain in the ass. And <laughs> I would love to see a hard slotting system. So like teams, yeah. teams would have to say, okay, if we view a, so what happens now is there will be, there will be a group of like five to 10 players in the same talent range. Teams don't view the difference in them too much. They'll go to each of these players and say, will you take this? Will you take this? Yeah. And often whoever is taking the, the cheapest deal, that's the player because teams don't find that much separation in the talent. I think it'd be very fun if it was hard slotting and you had to kind of make a pick on, on talent. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not trying to always do the comparison to basketball or football, but I just covered the NBA draft literally last week. There's no consideration. I mean, in in the second round, there's some weirdness. I will say in the NBA draft where like, you're considering like what, what, what deals guys will sign. But in the first round, you just take the best guy. Like it, you get paid, you get paid the Mm -hmm. amount for that slot. And it'd be, that's the hard slice system. It'd be kind of just, no one's considering whether whether they will sign or not in the first round of the NBA draft. It'd be very weird if they did. And I guess baseball is different because it's the guys are further away. There's, it's what you talked about earlier, the inherent weirdness of the uh, even the first day of the draft is that most people don't know who these people are. And that is mm-hmm. interesting. And they're further away and there's just more variants in general. But uh, yeah, I can imagine yeah. you you spend way you spend a large portion of your life uh, having to figure having to figure out like who's going <laughs> to sign where based on like money versus whether they're actually supposed to be drafted that high. And that's that's an interesting system they have. Yeah, for sure. I think the the one the, the one reason that this system makes more sense compared compared to a straight slotting system is because you do have the fact that you can draft high school players and college players. And let's say like a high school player doesn't go where he expects to go. Like he should still have the option to go to college. And because of that, it's weird to have, it would be a lot trickier to do a hard slotting for high school players, knowing that they have another option. Right. They they can, they they can just add a hard. Yeah. Yeah. If you added hard slotting, you would have to have some way of like opting into the draft and then they lose leverage. It would be very tricky to do. So I understand it. It's a good um, point. But it, but it can be overly complex at times. <laughs> it can be. And like, you know, I, again, I, it seems like they're, the Braves baseline has been to go under, which a lot of teams do in the first round mm-hmm. for flexibility. And um, uh, just for record keeping sake, the Braves have four picks in the top hundred. Um, they have three picks on the first day. In fact, they had the last pick of the first day, pick 70, which is notably the comp pick for Dansby Swanson. If you are wondering what that looks like, that's what that, that's what that, <laughs> that picks from. Uh, but I mean, so at 24, they don't pick until, until 59 after that. That's, you know, mm-hmm. flexibility there. And uh, it'd be a lot of fun if I could just make you say a bunch of names, but everything mm-hmm. we just said, doesn't make that a very conducive thing to predict for a team picking in the twenties. I mean, I'll, I have to ask the question. I can give is you there, some names. I was going to say, is there is there anybody that you're thinking is like Bravesy, even if they're not going to be available? We'll, we'll do all the caveats, but anyone jump out to you is like yeah. a very natural Braves target or two, especially in the first round, because that's of course the one that gets all the attention. 
Well, I don't know if it's a natural Braves target, but I do find it interesting given where the, the system is at right now, where the organization is at, like the lack of bats, um, the lack of impact prospect bats they have currently. I think there are a lot of really exciting pitchers. The Braves obviously do a great job with pitchers, but if I was the Braves, I would be looking to infuse some more hitting talent. And there are there's a really strong group of high school shortstops uh, that I mentioned previously that there should be a number of options available to them at 24 this year, regardless of the order. Um, one that's been tied pretty consistently to the Braves this spring. We've heard that they like uh, this player, and that's George Lombard Jr. He is wow. a uh, shortstop out of <laughs> yeah. He's a George, George Lombard is a, a familiar sh- name, folks. I'll just say that if you're old, if you're old enough to know. <laughs> That's a familiar name yeah. to Braves fans. Yes, one of the prominent Bloodlines players in this class. He's multi-sport athlete. He is a really talented soccer player, but he's he's physical, six foot three, 190 pounds. He's increased his power and speed over the last six months or year. Uh, had a really strong spring. Uh, just a very well-rounded, athletic, shortstop. That's a name that's actually been tied to the Braves. Now, the Braves have been kind of a trickier team to pin down than some of the other teams around them. Like if, For whatever reason, it seems like the Yankees – Everyone always knows who the Yankees are on. The Braves aren't exactly like that. Uh, They have been tied to a lot of high school shortstops in general, high school position players. I think some of that is just because the board should fall. Like there should be a lot of those types of players available. Walker Martin is a a prominent high school shortstop out of Colorado who has just uh, insane tools. uh, One of the better athletes in the class. He's very old for the class. So if you're like a really progressive analytics Drafter, maybe you won't like the 19.4 age at the draft. Kevin McGonigal is a Pennsylvania shortstop, uh, another high school shortstop, maybe the best pure hitter in the high school class. It's kind of Cole Young vibes from a year ago who the Mariners took in the first round. Very similar profile, if if you guys are familiar with him. Um, He's one. I think for me, like personally, I would like to see if these players are available, Bryce Eldridge, and Charlie Soto, Bryce Eldridge is maybe the best two-way, legitimate two-way player in the class. He's a right-handed pitcher and first baseman out of uh, Virginia. He has like all of the traits to be a solid starting pitcher, but also has gargantuan left-handed power. He's six foot seven, two hundred thirty-three pounds. It's actually interesting. I th- I think there have been some like Matt Olson shades of Matt Olson mm. comparisons. So th- maybe that one's intriguing for Atlanta fans. He should be somewhere in the mid to late first round. So that I think that would make sense on talent and the Braves have just done such an excellent job with two-way players in the past. Um, and it feels like they've taken a lot of two-way players and, and bucked the consensus side of that two-way split and really developed the player. Well, I think Michael Harris is a pretty prominent example of that. Yeah. And then one other one is Charlie Soto. He's a right-handed pitcher out of uh, all these are high school players, but he's a, a right-handed pitcher out of Florida and has just an absolutely outstanding, like, foundation of pure stuff and athleticism he's also a converted shortstop he, he he's, he's done playing shortstop but he came to pitching full-time later than most of of his peers and in our preseason polling i think he was top three in fastball slider change up tools wise for the high school class which is really impressive so i think getting an arm talent like that with atlanta's pitching development folks would be just super exciting similar to i'm like like an aj smith shaver but with more polish and more now stuff like Smith Shaver was a six rounder with, with massive arm talent, but I think Soto is, is quite a bit better as a like further along in his development and just seeing how quickly the Braves were able to get Smith Shaver yeah. through the system, like another adding another talent like that would be really exciting too. So those are a few names that come to mind. Yeah. It'd be very, uh, that'd be nice to have another guy move that, move that fast. My, my quick search on Charlie Soto tells me he's still 17 years old right now. That's uh, 
Yeah, he he's very young. Kind of the opposite of Walker Martin. He's he's one of the youngest players in the class. And then another shortstop would be Colt Emerson, who is also on the younger side, one of the youngest players. There are a number of like seventeen year olds or very close to seventeen year olds in this class that that should go in the first round. I should also say my my uh, my laughter earlier was not about Carlos, but if people that are probably too young remember that George Lombard was a Braves prospect, and that's that's his father. That's why that's why that's why I laughed. Uh, he was drafted by the Braves yeah. in 1994, which is uh, well before Carlos's time, even, and a lot of people on this podcast. That was the year of my birth, actually. There you go. So uh, that was so my time. <laughs> George Lombard, Braves legend. Uh, that's it. That's his son, which is uh, pretty wild to me. Uh, anyway, so yeah, yeah th- those are I mean, obviously a lot of names, and uh, we would all acknowledge that. It's going to be hard to figure out who they're going to, especially beyond the first round. It gets even gets weirder. It's about like mm-hmm. Carl said before, who who slips, it, how much money they save if they were to save some in the first round. But uh, yeah, three picks on that first night. So at, at the very least, you will probably wake up that next morning with three three guys that you can definitely overreact to. And uh, I know this, Carlos, <laughs> so you you will find, you will sure appreciate this. A lot of the mentions that we're getting these these days, anytime that Barry Power, or Chris, somebody write, writes up one of the mock drafts, is like, but they already have X player. It's it's one of my favorite things about the oh, draft no. is that yeah come on you guys have done such a good job covering the prospects the Braves fans should be well above that you and know, most we, of them are I will say most specific, of them are <laughs> we make fun of a few specific fan bases for that because they do seem to overreact even more but man the the Orioles have a whole lot of really good infielders right now I don't think they're mad about it like they're they got a lot of flexibility at the trade deadline yeah as soon as, as soon as you said uh, hitters <laughs> as, you, as soon as you said high school shortstop I I had this thought in my head like someone's gonna hear this and say Orlando RC is an all-star why do they need a shortstop oh and no it's gonna it's gonna happen I'm man, just saying take, it's gonna take happen. a look at it go ahead and take a look at the the minor league depth chart and then tell me that the Braves don't need a shortstop. Come on. Uh, we, we, we agree. I, again, I don't, I know very little about the minor leagues even, and I know very well that they could still just use some general position player talents and bats and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. So, I mean, number one, I wish, I wish you the best of luck on your, on, on your television performances uh, in the next week. Cause I know <laughs> well, you're doing you. a lot of stuff. Hopefully I don't, hopefully I don't say anything stupid on TV. That would be nice if that, it happen. would be good if you did not do that and get fired from your job and all that mm-hmm. fun stuff. Uh, speaking of your job, <laughs> you, you gave me all this time. We do have uh, a decent amount of listeners. Maybe people, maybe folks should be subscribing to places that you work for and following the stuff. So Carlos, where can folks find all of your masterful work year round? Yeah, you can find that at baseballamerica.com. That's where all my work goes. We've got draft rankings being finalized and updated. We'll have uh, probably maybe one or two more iterations of the mock draft as we get closer. Um, And then me and Ben Badler also do a podcast uh, called Future Projection. Uh, We try to do that weekly. Uh, It's a little trickier around the draft, so we're a little bit behind schedule. But um, (laughs) that podcast at baseballamerica.com and then at Twitter at Carlos A. Colazo are the, the three places. Uh, that you can find me talking, writing about baseball. And on this podcast, once at every blue moon, when I beg you to come on the pod, I, I appreciate you doing this for me. Yeah. In the middle of madness season, hopefully it was not too painful to talk about the Braves for a half hour of your life. No, it was a blast. <laughs> it was fun to come on. It's back to my roots, you know, Brad. Absolutely. It's, it's good to chat with you. You too, my friend. As for everybody else, please subscribe to this podcast. I do recommend checking out all Carlos' work. Sincerely, go ahead and do that, and we'll see everybody next time.